This is the kind of what they call a graveyard slot, because you're full of sugar. So you're either going to be hyperactive, you're going to have a moment of hyperactivity, or you're going to fall asleep. So um, has anyone been to the loo here? I hope you don't have to go to the loo during this session, because it's a very, very long way away, isn't it? Mind you, if you, if you feel a bit hyperactive because the sugar's doing its stuff, maybe you should take a little trip down there. Okay, so this little um, session is... Um, uh, Sarah gave it the title, I think it's called Self-Worth. Is that right? And um, I really want to kind of explore a bit of identity stuff, because the two are intrinsically linked. Have any of you here ever seen um, the kind of Trini and Susanna-type program? Yeah, most of you? One of my favorite programs where Trini and Susanna are this pair, for those of you that haven't seen it, that um, they take one or two kind of rather hopeless cases <laughs> each week who don't know how to dress brilliantly and don't have much confidence in either how to dress themselves or what they look like. And uh, they put them through rather a, a sort of an excruciating process. They strip them down to their bra and knickers in front of three mirrors, not just one. They have mirrors on all sides and the whole of the TV viewing public, you know, gets to watch. I think they're incredibly brave women. And then they sort of, you know, identify who they are, what shape they are, you know, what's going to suit them, take them out shopping. And I invariably end up in tears at the end of, you know, these programs. If you've never seen one, Google it on YouTube. Because uh, these women always end up just feeling completely different um, about themselves. And I know it's superficial in one sense because it's about the externals, but I do think there's something quite profound and spiritual about the process. It's about, you know, two women who are really sort of wanting to um, put value and uh, confidence into uh, the women that subject themselves to this process. And I'm not going to make you strip off this afternoon <laughs> in front of each other. Don't worry. <laughs> just in case you're feeling a little nervous. Um, but hopefully, maybe, we can begin to think about or identify some of the wrong stuff that we wear as women about you know, who we are, who God's made us to be. Some of the stuff that robs us of our confidence and our joy and our security in who we are in God and therefore the freedom that we are meant to have as God's children, as his daughters. And maybe I'd begin to identify how we find out uh, you know, what we should be wearing and how we might go about dressing ourselves in the right things to wear. Jesus calls them the robes of righteousness. Well, the righteousness of God is really who we are. You know, it's the truth about who we are you know, as kids of his. And we're meant to wear them. We're meant to wear the truth about who we are. And it's meant to make a difference to the way we look and the way people see us, and the way people experience us. Because, as I've just said, self-worth is all about identity, really. It's all about what we believe about ourselves, and uh, who we really think we are, the way we feel about who we think we are. And actually, the way we end up acting in life, the way we end up reacting, the things we say, the things we do, the things we don't do, it all flows from who we think we are what we believe about ourselves. If you believe that you're a bad mother because you've got kids, you will end up, a lot of the time, acting like you're a bad mother. Or, you know, feeling guilty because you think you're a bad mother. Or a failure. If you believe that you have nothing to offer, when the opportunities present themselves to you, when God presents you with opportunities, guess what? You're unlikely to take them. You know, you're unlikely to step into those things that God might put in front of you if you think that you've got nothing to offer. If you think that you're a failure, you're unlikely to step out and take risks because you'll be convinced that you fail. 
And so the way we act, the way we react, you know, how we live life is profoundly influenced by the way we think. So I want to answer, I'm going to get you to do some things as we go, but I'm going to try and begin to answer three questions this afternoon. And they are these. Does this identity thing matter or is it just merely vanity? You know, we follow Jesus, we love Jesus, it's all about Jesus. Does what we think about ourselves matter? And if so, why? Where does our identity come from? And how do we live or how can we go about living more effectively from our true identity? I don't know if you ever did this when you were children. Did you ever kind of prank call people? I can remember, you know... There's lots of things I'm not proud of in my childhood. But I can remember with uh, my sister on a number of occasions prank calling some of our you know, friends and relatives. At one point we did it to my elderly grandfather who got so angry we never dared tell him that we were on the other end of the phone. But it can be quite fun you know, in certain instances when you can disguise who you are and other people don't know who you are. It's slightly harder now with caller ID on your cell phones and emails and everything else. It's much harder to disguise who you are. But it can be quite fun for a bit. But actually, it is not fun and it is not good for us as Christians when we don't know who we are. And I think the church, it's my personal belief that the church is full of people, full of men and women who do not know who they are in Christ. They do not know who they've been called to be and who they've been saved to be. Actually, it's also full of men and women, I include myself in this, you know, who don't really know who God is. You know, we're on a journey of getting to know him more, and hopefully we're getting on a journey of discovering who he's made us to be. But we want to be people, don't we, who know who we are and who know who God is. Proverbs 4.23 says this. I think this is a profoundly important verse. If you don't know it, I'd encourage you to learn it. It says this in the, uh, the New Century Version. Be careful what you think because, do you know what the rest of it is? Your thoughts run your life. It doesn't say that your decisions run your life or that your circumstances run your life. It doesn't say that the people you live with run your life, that your past runs your life. It doesn't even say that God runs your life. It says, be careful how you think because your thoughts run your life. Say that to the woman next to you. Tell her. Be careful how you think because your thoughts run your life. So it's not actually who you are that really matters. It's who you think you are. It's not who you are, but who you think you are that really matters. That's why, actually, the answer to that first question is yes, it really does matter. Let's look at Jesus. He's always the place to go when we're asking questions. Is this important? Does this matter? Is this what God's saying? We look at the life of Jesus. What happened when Jesus made his first appearance onto the scene as a young man ready to start his ministry? What happened to him? What was the first thing that happened to him? It's not a trick question. <laughs> he got baptized. And what happened when he was baptized? The spirit descended and what was said over him by the Father in heaven? You're my beloved son who with whom I am well pleased. Now, I am not God. I know you've worked that out. 
And, uh, you know, it's a good thing I'm not God. But if I was God and my son, who I'd waited all these years to send to the earth to begin this magnificent plan of salvation and to reconcile man to God, if it was my son's first moment on the stage at the beginning of his ministry, I'm not convinced that that would have been what I would have said about him. I think I might have said, hey, everybody, here's my son, Jesus. He's going to save you all. He's going to provide the way for you to come back into relationship with me. Listen to him. Take note of him. Pay attention to everything he does and everything he says. You know, I might have said something like that. But God says, this is my son. This is my boy. And I love him. And I'm really pleased with him. You know, Jesus was 30. He wasn't a little boy, you know, out in the playground having a bad day. He's a 30-year-old man. And yet this is what God chooses to say over him because I believe it's what Jesus needed to hear. And what he was doing in that moment was affirming for Jesus, again, at the beginning of his ministry, you're my son. You're not primarily the savior of the world. You're not primarily an amazing teacher. You're not primarily a prophet. You're not primarily a healer. You're not primarily, you know, the way to, to me. You're my son. And that's what matters. And that's why I love you. And that's why I'm pleased with you. Because you're my son. And you're living as my son. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness. And the enemy starts having a go. And he tempts him. We're familiar with the story. And the question that he asked Jesus at the beginning of two of the three temptation goes like this. If you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, you know, jump off this mountain. What was he trying to do? He was trying to undermine Jesus' confidence in who he was. And the reason is simple. It's because if he could get Jesus to doubt who he really was, the fact that he really was the son of God, the fact that God really was his father and for him, if the enemy could get him to question his identity and start believing lies about himself, the rest of his earthly ministry would have been totally undermined and he wouldn't have been able to fulfill what God had sent him to fulfill. So he went for his thoughts And he went for what he thought about himself and his relationship with God. And mercifully, Jesus was so confident about who he was, who God said he was, who God had made him to be, what God had called him to be, and the fact that he was going to live out his ministry and do everything he did on the earth as a son. He was so confident he didn't give in. He didn't doubt. He didn't question. And he came back in the power of the Spirit. Well, guess what? If this all mattered for Jesus matters for us too. It matters for us too, which is why the enemy has such a field day with the way that we think. So, be careful how you think, because your thoughts run your life. Who you think you are really, 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 really matters. And that's why the enemy spends so much time messing with our thoughts about who we are. So, Quick question for you to share with the the girl next to you. Have an honest moment and share with her how sure you are on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is low and 10 is high, you know, where you are on that scale about who God says you are.
and how easy or how tough you find it to believe. Okay? On a, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is low and 10 is high, how sure are you, how confident are you about who God says you are? Yes. How easy do you find it to believe? How much do you know about what, who God says you are and how easy do you find it to believe? How much do you think you know about who God says you are and how easy do you find it to believe? Okay. That was meant to be a short bit where you're meant to go two or nine. <laughs> but hey, why, would, why use two words when... 50 will do. <laughs> okay, so where do we get our sense of identity from? You know, what we believe about ourselves, where does it come from? It's really useful to understand this because we can't actually begin to move on beyond it until we understand where what we believe about ourselves comes from. And uh, the simple answer to this question obviously the who that we think we are, comes from the voices that have spoken into and over our lives since we've been alive, as it were. And how loud or how repetitive or how powerful or significant those voices have been to you will determine the level of impact that they have had on you. That, that, you know, they will determine the strength of the messages that you have heard and received and logged and then gone on to believe about yourself. So generally speaking, the people in authority over you, whether it's been parents or school teachers or church leaders or a boss at work or whoever, you know, people that you love, that you've invested in, you know, people that have been significant in your life, those voices tend to have more power than somebody that bumps into you on the street and says something to you. <laughs> you know, I know that's obvious, but it's worth pointing out. And, you know, voices, we've all been exposed to voices that have given us messages, feedback, during our lives about who we are. And uh, they have formed and shaped or been significant contributors to who we think we are. And then, of course, there's the other stuff, you know, that's, that's out there, the stuff on, uh, in the media, the stuff on TV, the stuff in the magazines, the stuff on the billboards, you know. There are messages coming at us from everywhere. And whilst they might not be individually a very powerful message, the more we see them, the more we hear them, the greater the impact they tend to have on us. 
you know, so you, you read a, you might see a picture in a magazine, I mean, just to take a very obvious example of somebody, you know, a woman and what the ideal woman is to look like. You might see it once and it might make, have no impact on you at all. But if you see the same picture, you know, every day for two years, well, it, it becomes a message that's, you know, begun to permeate your soul and it changes and affects the way you think. So, let's look at this from the Bible, because it's always good to know where, you know, what somebody's saying to you, <laughs> where, you know, where it's actually uh, highlighted in the Bible. I'm just going to read um, a, a bit from Gideon's story. I don't know if you know the story of Gideon. You can find it in chapter 6. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible, because he's, you know, another minority person who goes on to do great things for God. And uh, he's uh, a judge in Israel. God's people are being oppressed, and uh, God decides to pick Gideon to uh, rise up, lead a small army, to defeat the, the, the people that are making Israel's life a misery. And uh, it's a great story. You can, add, you can read that with your second cup of tea after you've read Esther, you know, at some point during the week, next week. But I'm just going to read um, five verses, six verses, when God comes to see Gideon and uh, sort of announce that he's got this mission for Gideon to sort of participate in. So in chap- uh, chapter 6, verse 11, if you want to follow it, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abiezerite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? So the Israelites were oppressed and, you know, being um, terrified by the Midianites. Where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said to him, go, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the weakest in my family. The Lord answered, I'll be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites together. And then the story goes on and, uh, you know, Gideon gets some strength and courage. And he goes on to do these incredible things. But I think what is so significant about this story, the fact that God chooses this man to go and save his people, I think what's so significant about this story is where it begins. Because the Lord shows up. And he knows that in order for Gideon to live the life that he's planned for him and prepared for him and called him to lead, he's got to begin with his thoughts. He's got to begin with his thought life. It begins with a challenge to the way Gideon sees himself, the way he thinks about himself. So he turns up, and the first thing that God says is, Greetings, mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. Now, Gideon's carrying in a, wild, uh, in a wine press. You know, God, the compassionate God, he could have turned up and said, Gideon, it's really tough, isn't it, what's happening? I know you're afraid. I know you're all really scared. I do understand, but I'm about to move in power. You know, I'm sure the Lord felt that. I'm sure that was all true. But his opening gambit was, you are a mighty warrior. He spoke straight into Gideon's identity because he knew Gideon's thoughts about himself needed to change if he was going to live the life that God had called him to. And that was the main thing that God saw about him. 
He did see a man that was afraid. But more than that, he saw a mighty warrior. Now, we know, you know, from Gideon's response, Gideon doesn't quite see it that way. <laughs> Me? A mighty warrior? God's not with us. I'm the least in my family. I'm the least of, you know, our family of the smallest clan. It can't be. It's not possible. Gideon and God don't see eye to eye here. Ever experienced that? Is that what happens when you read the Bible? Hmm. I don't quite see it like this, Lord. You're saying this, but it certainly doesn't feel like that. That's not my experience. Well, that's what's going on with Gideon here. And his back chat is a revelation about how he sees himself. He sees himself differently to how God sees him. And what he believes about himself is what comes out of his mouth. We've been abandoned. God isn't with us. I'm somebody, you know, and, and God isn't with me. That's one of the things he believed about himself, that God had abandoned him. I'm on my own. I can't save Israel. I'm not strong enough. I'm not good enough. I can't do this. My clan is the weakest. You know, we're a load of losers. You know, my clan. My family's a bit weak and pathetic. I'm the runt of my family. I'm the weakest in my family. I'm the least significant member in my family. Now, do you think Gideon just made all of that up on the spot? No. That's what he really believed. That's the stuff that had been going round and round in his head. And he'd had a whole pile of experiences where voices would have come in and said to him, oh, I mean, you know, probably some family members, we're the weakest family, we're a rubbish family, we're this, we're that. There would have been other family members probably at times that would have gone, Gideon, you know, you're small and insignificant, get on out of here. He'll have heard those voices at different times in his life. Sometimes he'll have heard them in his, in his head. They'll have come from the enemy because, you know, he'll have been sat thinking, you know, why has this happened to me? And the enemy will have just come along and gone, because you're so unimportant or because you're so weak and because you can't do these things. You know, these voices come in in all kinds of different scenarios. But the point is Gideon believed them. The point is that Gideon believed them, even though they weren't true. And for God to get a different result from Gideon's life, he needed to deal with the way he thought about himself. Be careful how you think, because your thoughts run your life. And every one of us has had different voices speaking to us, as I've said, and over us throughout our lives, giving us messages about who we are. You know, different from different angles and different sources. I've said that. And some of the messages will have gone like this. There'll be loads of them. But, you know, just to connect you with what some of them may have sounded like. You're ugly. You'll never amount to anything. You're a disappointment. All of this is your fault. You're a failure. You don't belong. You've got nothing to offer. You know, you're not wanted. You're stupid. You're a failure. You'll never change. If God was on your side, if God was in this, this wouldn't be happening. Do you recognize any of those voices? I mean, we all do. We've all heard them because we've all got the same enemy. There'll be different messages for, you know, for all of us, but there'll be a lot of similarity in them because we have the same enemy who wants to incapacitate us, like Gideon. And 
the reason we've become so shaped by these voices is because that we've believed that they're true, which is what you do when you're small, which is when they start. And uh, you'll know the messages that you've ingested about yourself because they're the ones that come up every time you kind of want to break out and do something new or you aspire to something or you dream about something. You know, they're the things that come back at you to put you back in your place and try and persuade you that actually, you know, it's not possible, nothing will change, whatever. So, actually, a good place to identify the voices uh, the messages that you've believed is when you're lying in bed at night <laughs> and you're going to sleep or you're, re you're wrestling with stress or you, you wake up in the middle of the night, that's a good place to identify what, you know, what the stuff is that you've believed. So, two questions for you to talk about uh, with the girl next to you. And I encourage you to be honest because, frankly, we're all in the same boat. We all have the same enemy. We all have the same God. And this is an issue for all of us. You know, if our thoughts run our lives, you know, God wants to have our thoughts, and so does the enemy. So, you know, let's be honest, let's be vulnerable. Two things to um, identify with the, with the girl uh, next to you, because it's, it's good to be able to sort of pinpoint some of these things. Where do you think you get or have got most of the messages that you've believed about yourself from? Okay, can you identify where you've got a lot of your messages from? Or another way of saying it, which are the voices that have impacted you most that you're aware of? Okay, that's question number one. Question number two, can you or are you willing to identify some of what those messages are? What people have said about you or what you have believed about yourself? Messages that you know that you live with. Okay, because it's when stuff is brought out into the light that God can begin to deal with it. Anything that's hidden in darkness remains in the enemy's territory. Anything that's brought into the light, you know, is in God's hands. Is that okay? Have a little chat then. 